Are you ready to open your mind and your heart? Welcome to the Fate of Humanity, Crucial Conversations for Our Survival, with your host, Lauren N. Nile. We can mature beyond today's prejudice and xenophobia. We can save our beautiful planet. The keys are self-awareness, awareness of others, and most important, love. Now, here's Lauren. Well, hi, everyone, and welcome back to my show. I'm your host, Lauren Nile. It's a pleasure to be with you again in this, the fifth episode of uh, Crucial Conversations for Our Survival, The Fate of Humanity. Now, um, two weeks ago, if you remember, I uh, hosted a show that I entitled Unconscious Bias, The Source and the Cure. And uh, I interviewed my dear friend, Jack Strayton, about that issue. Uh, and we had a very nice discussion about the whole concept of, of, of unconscious bias, what its source is, um, and what we can do about it. Uh, and then last week, we talked about uh, unearned privilege, uh, which is in some sense um, one of the results of unconscious bias. Well, on today's show, we're going to be talking about microaggressions, microaggressions, which is, in my view, one of the biggest uh, results of unconscious bias. So we're going to get into a discussion of what they are. But let me just, before getting into the actual substance of the conversation, tell you that this is one of those conversations that is indeed crucial for our survival as a species. We're talking about the need for more love, more compassion, more understanding among human beings. And part of the, the understanding piece, if you will, is understanding the, the experiences of others. Because it, in my view, is only in understanding how other people live. And specifically in this instance, how our unconscious bias impacts their lives lives and, and the quality of the, their lives, that we can indeed begin to develop increased compassion for others. So it seems to me that if we're really going to survive and thrive in the future, among the things that we must understand on a very fundamental level is how unconscious bias results in microaggressions toward other people. Now, um, I'm going to be setting up our discussion with a little bit of an introduction, and then following my introduction, I'm going to be introducing a guest. We have yet another guest this morning that's going to help us unpack, if you will, this whole issue of unconscious bias. Um, and I won't steal my own thunder by saying anything about my guest right now, but in probably five or six minutes, I'll be uh, introducing him and then getting underway with our discussion, which I think you'll find enlightening at least. So, to set up the issue of, of, of microaggressions, I'm going to basically uh, borrow from the work of Dr. Daryl Wing Sue. Dr. Sue is a, a PhD and uh, has done a lot of uh, research on the issue of microaggressions and has written a very interesting article called Microaggressions More Than Race. It was posted on November 17th, 2010 online. And all of what I'm about to share with you uh, in just a minute is from Dr. Sue's research. So he says, Dr. Sue says that microaggressions are the everyday verbal, nonverbal, and environmental slights, snubs, or insults, whether intentional or unintentional, which communicate hostile, derogatory, or negative messages to target persons based solely upon their marginalized group membership. Okay, 
everyday verbal, nonverbal, and environmental slights or snubs or insults, whether intentional or unintentional, and in my view, more often than not, they are unintentional, which doesn't mean that they still don't have an impact, but more often than not, they're, they're totally unintentional slights and insults that communicate you know, hostility or a derogatory or a negative message about someone based solely upon their membership in a marginalized group, marginalized based on their race or their sex or their disability or their age or uh, perhaps their sexual orientation, their gender identity. And so um, essentially, Dr. Uh, Sue wrote an article, wrote this article in which he talked apparently a lot about racial microaggressions. But then in response, he got lots of people asking him, well, can people be targeted for other things? Um, And he says, yes, microaggressions can be targeted against any group. So uh, essentially, he says that, listen, if you're an LGBTQ person or, you know, if you're a person with a disability, yes, you can be targeted for microaggressions. So, and he gives some examples then. He goes on to provide examples of microaggressions in some of these, uh, based on some of those characteristics. So, gender microaggressions. Here are some of the examples. An assertive female manager is labeled a B, while her male counterpart is described as a forceful leader. The hidden message? Women should be passive and allow men to be the decision makers. A, a female physician wearing a stereo—I'm uh, sorry—wearing a stethoscope is mistaken as a nurse. You know, in other words, someone walks into a room, they see the doctor with her stethoscope, and re- refer to her as a nurse or assume that she's a nurse. The hidden message: Women should occupy nurturing and and not decision-making roles. Women are less capable than men. Sexual orientation microaggressions. A young person uses the term gay to describe a movie that, that she didn't like. Oh, that's so gay. The hidden message? Being gay is associated with negative and undesirable characteristics. Another example, two gay men hold hands in public and you know someone yells out to them not to flaunt their sexuality. The hidden message? Same-sex displays of affection are abnormal or, or offensive. You should keep that stuff private. Keep that to yourselves. Here's another example of a microaggression based upon a person's uh, disability. A blind man reports that people often raise their voice when they speak to him, as if because he can't see, he, he can also not hear. The hidden message, a person with a disability is defined as lesser in all aspects of physical and mental functioning. Now, as an African American, I live with almost daily, really, microaggressions. So... Uh, I'll share a couple that Dr. Sue has offered in his article, and then I'll share a couple of mine from Dr. Sue's article. A white man or, or, or a white woman clutches their purse or, or clutches their wallet, you know, when they see a black or Latino man approach them, coming toward them maybe on a sidewalk. Um, one that I've been told about is, uh, uh, as I've heard this. I think Tom may be familiar with this one as well. I think we might have heard this one together in a workshop that that we were doing once. Black man's crossing the street in the crosswalk. Crossing the street. The white woman who's in the first car at the light, he hears the click of her doors as she locks herself in to protect herself from him. An Asian American, born and raised in the United States, is complimented for speaking such good English. The hidden message, you're not a true American. You are a perpetual foreigner in your own country. 
Now, Dr. Sue says the most detrimental forms of microaggressions are usually delivered by well-intentioned people, people who are who have no racist intentions, no sexist intentions, etc., and they're unaware that they've engaged in, 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 in harmful conduct. But it happens all the time. All right, so... Without going into uh, any further detail on sort of the explanation of what microaggressions are and, and, and what some examples are, because I think I've set it up quite enough at this point, let me introduce my guest with us this morning, who's going to be sharing his thoughts and experiences, really, with microaggressions, is my very dear friend of, oh, 27 years, Mr. Tom Finn. Tom is president of Tom Finn Associates. Uh, which is um, a uh, management consulting firm uh, that just celebrated 25 years uh, not long ago. Um, And some of the uh, clients that Tom Finn Associates has worked with include Fannie Mae, AT&T, Verizon, the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau, Harvard University, and the list goes on and on. You can find out all about Tom uh, and Tom Finn Associates at lifelineconsulting.com. That's lifelineconsulting.com. Tom is also um, the author of Are You Clueless? And it's a book that is in many respects about microaggressions among other, uh, among other things. Uh, Mike has a variety of experience uh, over the last more than quarter century working with organizations to, among other things, help them deal with diversity challenges. And Mike and uh, uh, Tom and I have been friends for, as I say, over 27 years and have uh, done numerous workshops together, uh, co-facilitating training for a variety of organizations. So it's my pleasure to introduce Tom and welcome to the show this morning, Tom. Thanks so much, Lauren. I'm so glad to be here on uh, a conversation that relates to the fate of humanity. (laughs) Well, thank you very much. And I do indeed believe that this conversation does relate to the fate of humanity, because unless we can get beyond all of the isms, uh, all of the stereotypes, all of the microaggressions, I don't know what kind of future the human race has when you look at what's happening across the world based on our differences and how we treat each other based on our differences. So thank you for that, Tom. So I have a few questions for you, and I'd uh, like you to just speak from the heart, if you will, as you always do about this issue. Tom is European-American uh, and has a perspective as one European-American on this topic of microaggressions, which I think will be elucidating, to say the least. So the first question I have for you today, Tom, is how did you first become aware that people of color, people with disabilities, LGBTQ people, older people, uh, people of... Uh, faiths that are not the majority faith in the United States. How did you first become aware that those that those other groups, if you will, live with microaggressions? You know, I was thinking about this um, interview as you were giving your introduction, Lauren, how someone who was listening might think, why is this guy going to be talking about microaggressions as a white male um, and Christian person, uh, heterosexual person, because... Dr. Sue's definition uh, describes that it is a condition, microaggressions are condition related to marginalized groups, right? Yes. And I am not a member of those marginalized groups. I mean, I have experienced slights over my lifetime, but they've never been related to the group that I belong to, and I think that's a really big distinction. 
Um, so how my becoming aware of this, one might wonder. And I was thinking back to when I was growing up that really the first inkling of this, I think, came for me when I was about 12. And I was living in a very sheltered community in New Jersey, which was not a diverse community at all in terms of race and religion. Um, And uh, there was certainly no um, awareness of gay and lesbian people. And so uh, there were, uh, this was back in the 1960s, and there were riots in the city of Newark as a result of Martin Luther King's assassination. And I remember reading in the newspaper and seeing pictures of Newark in flames. And I remember being scared um, because I thought, um, you know, would these black people come to our town and, and, uh, and put our little town in, in flames. Um, and I remember the friends of my parents talking about uh, what was going on there and blaming it all on the black people and the fact that they were welfare um, uh, supported communities. And so I, I just remember, even at 12, just thinking, how uh, how can you know that you know like how do you know what the motivations of these folks are we have no black people in in our town i just even then realized that this was such a um inaccurate opinion just because we didn't have any data we didn't have mm-hmm. any black people that we knew mm-hmm. and um i think that became the basis of my realizing that other groups must live with microaggressions because the basic um, misunderstanding that the group I was in, the white group had, of what black people were doing in Newark was so foundational mm-hmm. that I, I could easily see that uh, once you had any small interactions, you'd begin to see that uh, there was misunderstanding. And so mm-hmm. as my life went on, I could see this. Like when I went into college, one of my roommates was a black man from Boston, and he was telling me at the time there were a lot of racial difficulties in South Boston, which was unfortunately an Irish-dominated community, and I'm an Irish-American person. Uh, and he just happened to turn the corner and uh, land in South Boston, and no sooner was he there that a car went by and screamed out at him using the N-word to tell him mm-hmm. to go home and get out of his, this neighborhood. Right, um, right. And that one example was just one of many that I would continue to hear from colleagues that were people of color or women, and I started to realize, oh, okay, yes, this can happen, and I brought it back to that original sort of lack of understanding that my own community had in the 1960s. Well, it sounds, Tom, that it started early for you. Now, of course, we don't have a whole lot of time, so I can't ask even more questions about that that I'd love to ask. But one of them that's on, maybe we can talk about it later. In fact, we've talked about this (laughs) in the past is, how did you at 12 have that kind of awareness? That's a conversation for another time. But (laughs) everybody in your community had a certain mindset. And here you were, a 12-year-old kid, thinking, but we don't know any black people. There are no black people in our community. Uh, There are no black people that attend our church. 
you know, you, you don't have any friends that come over. Uh, how is it that you know this about these people? All these things that you're saying. I'd love to know how at 12 you had that kind of sensibility. But again, we might do another show on that, Tom. <laughs> so thank you for that. It, it clearly started early in life. And as you say, as you matured, you were able to see uh, other examples of how that mindset that you saw at 12 played out in people's lives in terms of the behavior that was directed toward them. Well, I'd like you to share with us, um, if you can, Tom, uh, you remember that you and I were traveling in the 1990s. We were working for the same consulting firm in Maryland, which is where we met and when we became friends in 1990. But at some point during that time period, it had to have been either 90, 90, 91 or 92, because that's when we worked for this firm together. You and eight or nine other of uh, others of us consultants were traveling around the country for a period of months on a big training contract. And you and another gentleman, uh, our friend Jim, were the only two uh, European Americans on the team. There were two African Americans, two Native Americans, two Hispanic Americans, and then the two of you, Jim and, and yourself, who were the two European Americans on this on this team, if you remember. And... So we had to check into hotels a lot. We had to check out of hotels. We had to, um, uh, of course, show up at the at the training site. Uh, we had to get taxis together, all of us traveling together on this big contract. I remember, Tom, at one point, oh, we had to go to restaurants for dinner together, etc. And I remember at one point during that experience of us traveling, doing all that traveling for that big contract, I remember you saying, how do you guys put up with that? I'd be furious all the time. I would just be furious all the time. How do you guys live with this stuff? Can you explain, Tom, what did you mean by that? I'd be furious all the time. Why did you say that, and what did you mean by that? You know, I was thinking that um, I'm, I'm a pretty passionate person, and I think that as I've had colleagues 30, and 30 friends to break? Over, the, over the years who have um, experienced microaggressions, it's been interesting to see that there's an array of responses to them. Like uh, my friend that I talked about in college, he never seemed to just decide that, even though he, he received this kind of treatment, that white people, for example, were bad people, and he was able to mix well with all groups. I, I've always been amazed by him. So okay, uh, his- I, I ask you, Tom, I'm going to ask you, Tom, um, to hold that thought. We have to uh, break, and then we'll come right back on the other side Great. of the break. Okay? We'll do. Yep. All right. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Lauren is available for readings of her book, Race, My Story, and Humanity's Bottom Line, for keynote speaking engagements, training engagements, and for the facilitation of retreats. She works with both large and small organizations. Her interactive and experiential workshops range from four hours to four days in length. When working with groups, Lauren's style is a comfortable blend of both passion and peacefulness. She brings her sense of humor appropriately to all of her work. 
Lauren's work with groups has been described as eye-opening, inspirational, powerful, and life-changing. The goal of Lauren's work with employers is to help organizations create work environments in which every individual is both highly welcomed and equally valued. The goal of Lauren's speaking and training in the greater society is to help the human species grow in both wisdom and compassion. Her fervent desire is to help all people see the divine in themselves and themselves in each other. For more information about Lauren's programs, please visit laurennile.com. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. This is the fate of humanity. Crucial conversations for our survival. To reach host Lauren N. Nile with questions or comments about the program, please send an email to author and speaker Lauren at gmail.com. That's author and speaker Lauren at gmail.com. Now, let's return to the fate of humanity. Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for rejoining us in uh, our conversation on the issue of microaggressions. I'm here, your host, Lauren Nile, with our guest, Mr. Tom Finn. And I had just asked Tom why it was that when we were traveling together, uh, among other um, trainers, we had a group of 10 of us traveling together in the early 90s doing a big training contract, why it was that uh, in really living with uh eight other people of color on the road for a series of months, for a few months, after checking in hotels with us and going into restaurants with us, um, after uh, showing up at training sites with us, he said, and this is a quote, I'd just be furious. How do you guys put up with this stuff? I'd just be furious all the time. And I just asked Tom, Tom, why did you say that? And so Tom was about to give us his answer. Go ahead, Tom. Yeah, so I was saying, you know, I'm just a very passionate person, and so just to to have people making assumptions about me without even knowing me, um, and the stealing, assuming I was going to steal something or that I was dishonest or whatever, that would just, I would just go crazy. Uh, It would just drive me nuts, and so I I just couldn't imagine dealing with that every day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'll give you some examples. Um, As an African-American, I, uh, I think I might have mentioned this on the show with Jack on Unconscious Bias, but I was about to buy something in a store. I was about to get into line. I was about to get behind the last person in line when the older white woman who was the last person with, you know, um, that I was going to stand behind um, got scoot, literally scooted up so close to the person behind her that I literally, I literally thought in that moment, does that woman not feel her breathing on her neck? I mean, she was that close to that person. She had to have as much physical space from me as she possibly could. And then after about, I don't know, 15, 20 seconds or so, she slowly turned around and looked at me. I don't know what that was about. I honestly don't know. But that's the kind of thing that happens all the time to me as a, as a person of color. I hate going shopping because the chances are quite good that I'm going to be followed around. And you see it. It's obvious. Even though the person is trying not to make it obvious, it's quite obvious. Uh, People do not give you the benefit of the doubt in so many situations. I uh, 
ha- have a home in an area where there are lots of um, gated communities. And I uh, went to a, a friend's party recently, and uh, the code didn't work at the gate. And I thought, okay, um, this is interesting. Now, there was no guard there at the time, but at the time, I thought, I'm glad there's not a guard here, because if I said to the guard, well, I really do know somebody who lives in there, and I, I just need to, I thought, you know, I might be put through the through the ringer on that. Well, who do you know who lives in here? And, you know, you just, in those kinds of life situations that you have every single day, you just are not given the benefit of the doubt. You are assumed to be a thief. Well, you can't afford what's in this store. Why are you in here? It's just, and it's it's something you live with all the time. Okay. Um, And yeah, uh, Tom, you said, boy, it would just drive me crazy because you saw it, Tom, right? You were with us, right? You remember when we were, when we were checking into the hotel in San Francisco and all of us had this, you remember that? (laughs) Yep. Yep. Our, the same consulting firm made all of our arrangements, and yet, I think it was our friend Jim, right? Uh, yes. When he went up to get his room, he got, uh, you know, some kind of upgraded room. Now, we didn't know that until we came down for dinner, maybe a half hour later. We were all meeting in, at the lobby to go down to dinner after a long day of training. And Jim said, boy, these rooms are nice, aren't they, with the jacuzzi? And the, and we were like, what? <laughs> jacuzzi and the, and, the, and the microwave oven? And we were like... Uh, huh, interesting. And we, we basically laugh. Not that it's funny, but it was yet another example of how this European-American man who had the same arrangements that we had, his, uh, his arrangements were made by the same firm, the same firm that uh, does these kinds of arrangements. Uh, you know, he had the, the, the same arrangements we had, and yet he got the upgraded room. And so he wouldn't even have known that if we hadn't said, uh, we didn't, we got a regular standard room, Jim. Um, so there are ways in which people can get unearned privilege and not even know it. And yet when you're on, when you're not, when you don't receive it, you see it, you hear it, you experience it. And it becomes at that point a microaggression. So can it run you crazy? Sure, if you let it. Uh, you have to learn over the course of your life to deal with it whether it's being with dealing with the police or with these kinds of situations that we're discussing now. So, Tom, I'd like to ask you, yeah, did you want to say something? Go ahead, Tom. I was, I was also thinking about what you said about shopping, Lauren. I mean, shopping's not yeah. a big deal, but you said you hate shopping, you know, and that's really, I think, a great example of the impact of these aggressions, you know, that yeah. it's, it has an impact on your life. Yeah. Um, I've had a similar um, uh, kind of example this weekend. We went to a college reunion, and a woman to- who was who told me that she was interested when she started out her college in being a creative writer. Just before signing up for classes, she was riding or uh, going for a run, and a guy stopped her and started flirting with her and she started to feel uncomfortable about it and eventually sort of just ran away. Well, it turned out that this guy was the head of the creative writing department Mm. and she decided that she was too uncomfortable to go and take that class and it Mm. changed her life. She never went into, she had wanted to be a novelist when she started out college. She never did that um, because she was afraid of being harassed uh, in, sure. her, in her, the very first class. 
Absolutely. Absolutely, Tom. That's a that's a great example of how these things can impact your life uh, with regard to not only things like I don't like to shop, but with regard to your career, mm-hmm. um, you know, your 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 finances, even as 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 Jack was saying on the show on, on, on unconscious bias. Look, uh, you know, can people who have real or apparent hatred in their hearts, people who are maybe members of their local Ku Klux Klan uh, chapter and, I don't know, show up in Charlottesville, Virginia, protesting, you know, taking down of a Confederate uh, statue. Can they impact people's lives? Uh, Yeah, sure, on some level in terms of making people psychologically feel unsafe in their own country, sure. But listen, someone who is the the head of the of that creative writing uh, department or you know an instructor in, in a creative writing class someone who um, is in the position of grading a, a student's paper uh, such as you know Jack someone those people their unconscious bias can really impact a person's life in in profound ways so yep. thank you for that story Tom that that's a great one that's man that's a great one I'd like to borrow that one from you if I can yeah it's a very sad one. Yeah. So let me ask you this. Um, what do you think is the impact of being unaware of microaggressions when sometimes people start talking about their, their experiences, they're met with what I call the common responses. Oh, that waiter didn't, everybody has a bad waiter every now and then. I mean, I, you know, it happens to me sometimes. It was just the luck of the draw. Why do you have to chalk everything up to race all the time? Why do you have to always think it's about your, your gender? I mean, it's, you're, you're, you're overly sensitive. Everybody has bad experiences in life. So, you know, why do you always think it's about that stuff? People who respond that way, who just can't hear it, how do you think it impacts, you know, their life, the life of the person who's unaware? How does it impact their attitude and how does it impact their behavior toward others? What do you think, Tom? Well, it's, you know, this is why I wrote this book, Are You Clueless? Because I think that we think we're better at interacting across differences than we are. Uh, the reason I wrote the book is because I work with a lot of companies and agencies where people would say to me, well, I get it about diversity. You know, I, it, it's, it's not that hard. You know, we just treat people with respect, right? Mm-hmm. But I wasn't seeing that. You know, you continue, well, you've, you've seen the Weinstein Corporation, for example, and all the, um, you know, um, sort of accusations against them and, and the impact mm-hmm. it's going to have on them. Mm-hmm. It isn't that easy. And so I think that we underestimate, the impact is that we underestimate um, the effect of microaggressions and the effect on us as people who don't experience those microaggressions. And we, then we dismiss, as sort of in your example, we dismiss the experience of other people. And that is what just makes me so... I get angry about that. I get sad about that because it, going back to your original message, we need to understand the experience of others. If we don't, then we can become dismissive, um, and we're not helpful to the folks that we are in uh, not only companies with but in a common humanity with. Mm-hmm. And and I would say, Tom, not only are we not helpful in those situations, and I'm saying we because – you know, I have I have uh, categories in which I am in the um, non-targeted group. For example, I don't live with a disability. Um, you know, I'm I'm not 
a person who is uh, so old yet <laughs> that people dismiss me out of hand based on my age. You know, I have some, if you will, majority groups myself. And so I'm saying we because, you know, all of us have some way in which we, we uh, are, are in a, a majority group. But um, so not only are we not helpful, as you say, but I would say that we're part of the problem because mm-hmm. as long as we are engaged in that kind of denial, the issue itself has very little chance of, of being more widely understood and therefore addressed. Mm-hmm. You, know? you have to yeah. first acknowledge it. And in acknowledging it, I think what's hard for people is that immediately people go to, well, I'm not a racist. Well, I've never used the N-word. Well, I, you know, they make it yeah. personal. As opposed to thinking, well, wait, this person's not saying I did it. They're just telling me what some of their experiences are with others. Well, it doesn't mean that those people are racist or sexist. Well, maybe, maybe not. You know, as I say, most of it is unintentional. That woman in that line that was that was inching up, uh, you know, behind the person in front of her to sort of get as much distance between she and I as possible. I'm not saying she's a racist or that she was doing it intentionally. But I'm just saying that whether it's intentional or not, I saw it. And the impact on me was, man, it's a nice day. The, the, the weather's beautiful outside. And wow, once again, here it is. You never know when it's going to pop up at any instant. Um, and, and so the impact is that you, you, you live with this cloud all the time. It's not that you're expecting it. It's not that you're going around expecting it. But it's that it just hits you. <laughs> you yeah. know, when sometimes when you least expect it, day in and day out. I was in a, uh, going into a store, this was some time ago, with a couple of friends of mine who are European-American, persons standing outside the door of the store with uh, a pad and asking everybody who walks by, hi, are you a registered voter in Manalpa County? Yep, are you a registered voter? Yes, ma'am. Hi, good morning, are you a registered voter in Manalpa County? I asked my two friends the same thing. I walked in behind them, nothing, I get nothing. I thought, oh, here it is. Here, you know, she. This person was so uncomfortable in just d- interacting with me, in in that way that she just didn't say anything to me. I thought, wow, you know. Um, so those are the when we talk about microaggressions, that's what we're talking about, and it happens all the time. Um, yeah. And so, yes, uh, denying it just makes the problem bigger, in my view. So, uh, in terms of people's relationships, society at large even, however you want to talk about it, Tom, what do you think? What's the impact on, on human relationships? Do you think that if I had told you about an experience I had in a restaurant or in a store or in trying on clothing where the person behind the counter came and stood right outside the fitting room door until I came out of that fitting room with that outfit on the hanger when they, I didn't see her do it to any other customers. Mm-hmm. When I tell you about those kinds of experiences, and if you were saying to me, oh, Lauren, come on, you're too sensitive. I'm sure they watch everybody in those stores. What do you think What do you think would have been the impact on our relationship, yours and mine? Yeah, I mean, I think you would have just said, oh, here's another uh, white person who doesn't get it, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, and we wouldn't have been able, to, I think, to have the kind of relationship that we have, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and as I've, you've given your examples, I've, it's made me think, on a person-to-person level, it takes a lot of emotional intelligence to be able to sort of decouple your impact from my um, intent. Uh, behavior or intent, right? Uh-huh, uh-huh. If, if I can do that, if I can see that, 
oh, here's the impact it's had on Lauren without personalizing it to me and Mm -hmm. thinking um, I'm a bad person. I can then see your experience. And then I might apologize, you know, and say, oh, my Mm -hmm. gosh, you know, uh, look at the impact my behavior is having. That person-to-person sophistication Mm -hmm. is something that we need at the societal level as well. And that is very difficult to do. You know, I think it's, it makes it hard for us as a society to grapple with these issues of microaggressions and unconscious bias because we have to be pretty sophisticated emotionally to be able to see impact without personalizing it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it's, we're really in a quandary as a society because I don't think that most people have that level of emotional intelligence. I, I don't think so. Uh, if I talk about it, then it's personalized. And, and that's, that's really, really tragic because you will never be able to hear me. You'll never be able to learn. You know, I say to people, it's, it's not about, for, for, for most people, I really do believe it. it's not about intentional uh, racism. It's not intentional uh, uh, you know, uh, discrimination against people with disabilities, etc. Um, but it's about comfort level. You know, the person just isn't comfortable with you, or or they may be afraid of you, unconsciously. There's that fear. You know, and so when you see people engaging in a fear reaction, just your physical countenance, just seeing you, gives them that reaction. And you see, when you walk through life, you see that time and time and time again. And even if it's not fear, it's oftentimes apprehension. You know, a lot of time, I mean, I think because I'm, I'm, I'm a woman, because I'm female, the fear reaction I don't experience too much. Not as much as I know my uh, male, uh, African-American uh, and Latino male, you know, friends and relatives experience. They, they see the, they hear the doors locking. They, they see the clutching of the purses. Um, but for me, it's more apprehension. You know, mm-hmm. uh, the way the person looks at me, I can see, oh, what's what's going to go on in this interaction? Um, so and, and, and when you see that all the time, it takes a tremendous toll emotionally. Yep. All right. We are going to come back after the break, uh, continue our conversation and finish our last segment. Thanks for joining us, listeners. We'll see you in a few seconds. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Lauren is available for readings of her book, Race, My Story, and Humanity's Bottom Line, for keynote speaking engagements, training engagements, and for the facilitation of retreats. She works with both large and small organizations. Her interactive and experiential workshops range from four hours to four days in length. When working with groups, Lauren's style is a comfortable blend of both passion and peacefulness. She brings her sense of humor appropriately to all of her work. Lauren's work with groups has been described as eye-opening, inspirational, powerful, and life-changing. The goal of Lauren's work with employers is to help organizations create work environments in which every individual is both highly welcomed and equally valued. The goal of Lauren's speaking and training in the greater society is to help the human species grow in both wisdom and compassion. 
deeper fervent desire is to help all people see the divine in themselves and themselves in each other. For more information about Lauren's programs, please visit laurennile.com. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. This is the fate of humanity. Crucial conversations for our survival. To reach host Lauren N. Nile with questions or comments about the program, please send an email to author and speaker Lauren at gmail.com. That's author and speaker Lauren at gmail.com. Now, let's return to the fate of humanity. Hi, everyone, and welcome back. I'm still your host, Lauren Nile, and we are here with our guest, Mr. Tom Finn, president of Tom Finn Associates and author of Are You Clueless? And we're talking about the issue of microaggressions. Now, over the break, we were discussing a little bit about what it might take to help people who are in dominant groups, majority groups, to help them understand this issue of how prevalent microaggressions are in the lives of those of us who live in targeted groups, and how it impacts the quality of our lives. And Tom made a very interesting point that I actually agree with wholeheartedly, and I'm going to give an example uh, of the point that he made. He said, you know, in order for me as a white person to really understand where you're coming from, Lauren, I have to be able to, to feel what you feel without taking it personally. I have to know that you're not indicting me by just telling me about the things that happen to you day in and day out. I have to be able to to feel it, to to be able to empathize on a deep level, but not take it personally. So here's an example, I think, um, of what Tom was was, uh, uh, offering at that point. Uh, Years ago, I was doing a workshop in which uh, we were talking, it was a diversity workshop, and we're talking about unearned privilege, and we're talking about unconscious bias, and we're talking about microaggressions and how they impact people's lives. And there was a, a, a white woman in the class who uh, was sitting with her arms folded the whole time, eyes down, and nodding her head, no, just constantly nodding her head, no, no, no. In other words, what I was getting from her nonverbals was, I'm not buying this. No, I don't believe it. I think they're, I think they're, they're just um, making a big deal out of nothing. This happens to everybody. No, I, I don't think that this is as much of an issue as they're saying it is. They're just overly sensitive. That's what I was picking up from her nonverbal behavior, her nodding her head no and not making eye contact, etc. Well, shortly before lunch, she finally, that woman finally opened up. She just couldn't take it any longer. And she said with much feeling in her voice, I hear you guys talking about how you're impacted by racism every day and nobody gets it and, you know, the world is so awful for you. But what about me? She said, what about my pain? I've, I was sexually abused from the time I was three until I was 14 years old. I don't hear anybody talking about my pain. What about my experience? I'm a human being too. I have pain too. I'm not black and things hurt me too. And in that moment, I thought to myself, oh my God, this woman was sitting here all day in tremendous pain. No wonder she couldn't hear. No wonder she couldn't get it. No wonder she couldn't let it in. Her own pain wouldn't allow it. 
I was shocked that she shared in that way. But after she did, I just looked at her. You could hear a pin drop in the room at that point. But I just looked at her and I said, thank you for sharing that. Thank you for sharing that. And I'm so sorry that happened to you. That should never have happened to you. You were an innocent child. And that was wrong. And I'm so glad you survived it. And thank you for having the courage to share that with us. And I said to her, that was not my life experience, so I cannot say I understand. But I'm so sorry that happened to you. And I'm so proud of you as a survivor. We took a break at that point. We came back from the break. I checked in with her at the break, talked to her for a bit. She had to go into the women's room to uh, clean up a little bit. She was crying, of course. And when she came back from the break, it was as if she was a new person. She was sitting there when people of color were telling their stories. She was nodding her head, yes, this time. When people heard, uh, uh, shared their stories, she verbally went, mm, mm, mm. she was feeling it. She, it. she was able to let it in because there was a way in which I acknowledged her pain. And I let her know that I hear you and that I empathize with you. And as one human being to another, I'm so sorry that happened to you. That was the breakthrough for her. And so that seems to me, Tom, to be a very good example of what you were saying, that we have to feel it without personalizing it. So if there's a way in which people in majority groups can think about their own experiences in which they have felt devalued, in which they've uh, felt unheard, misunderstood, in which they felt uh, stereotyped, not given the benefit of the doubt simply because of some immutable characteristic of birth. If there's if there's something or some experience that they've had that they can get in touch with, maybe at that point they can be able to hear when African Americans and other people of color, Hispanic Americans, Asian Americans, when people with disabilities, when lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender people talk about their experiences, they may be able to hear and understand if they can get in touch with a time when they felt something like that. Mm-hmm. You're saying uh, being able to identify in some way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. absolutely. Well, one of the things I think you know better than I is that one of the ways that corporate executives, uh, this is, I think, mostly men, have been able to get the effect of sexual harassment in their workplaces has been when one of their daughters or one of their wives has mm. experienced the same thing. Yeah. Um, we've found that over the years, uh, you and I did some of that training together, you know, that that kind of identification does help. Um, so if it's, if that's one way, I think that people in my groups can, can be um, able to work with those who are different from us through identification. I also think that there are times when I don't identify and I have to come up with something else, right? And I think one of the ways is that I've got to be able to sort of see patterns uh, in uh, larger, uh, larger patterns. So, for example, 
if, you, if we just think about the debate that's gone across the country around um, police brutality and the disparate impacts on people of color, one of the mm-hmm. things that I think is just fascinating to think about there is, could I step back for a moment, even if I'm a big police supporter, and say, why are people in L.A., Seattle, Oklahoma City, St. Louis, Boston, all of these cities, why are people of color in places who don't know each other experiencing the same thing? Hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. that is one way for us in majority groups to be able to really be partners is to step back for a moment and just say, it, it's got to be interesting that large groups of people are having the same experience. All over the country, in so many disparate parts of the country, so many, you know, from the East Coast to the West Coast. Right. I agree, Tom. I agree. Seeing patterns um, is is very important because if you see them, you have to ask yourself, well, why is that? And come on, all these people can't be crazy. Right, exactly. <laughs> I mean, you know, come on, Ferguson, Missouri, and New York City? You yep. know, Ferguson, yep. Missouri, and L.A.? What do they have in common? All these folks cannot be out of their minds. Yeah. Um, so I, I agree. Seeing patterns is something um, that can really help those who are in majority groups to to to, to understand. Um, that takes a certain amount of cognitive intelligence, I believe, in addition to emotional intelligence. And I just hope that most people are, you know, up to the challenge of engaging in that kind of, of cognitive thinking. You know, and it um, also takes that, that decoupling again. We have a friend who's mm-hmm. a policeman, and I mm-hmm. I haven't had this discussion with him yet, but I think. He sees things totally the other way from, you know, not surprisingly, from uh, the standpoint of his colleagues. Um, And so I think it would be be an interesting conversation for the two of us to have. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I, I love that term, decoupling. We have to we have to see the issue without coupling it with, oh, it's an attack on me. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Yeah, I love that. Decoupling it. Um, so, you know, what's interesting, too, is that. All of us, all of us need empathy and understanding around the ways in which racism, sexism, homophobia, heterosexism, ableism, uh, anti-Semitism impact the lives of those who are targeted by it. Um, and and I, as I try to do with the women in the class that I just talked about, I really, really let each other know that I am sorry that these things happened to you. Even though you yourself, well, I'm not doing it. No, I'm not saying that you're doing it. But you know, come on, you know how many people out there in the world have a fear, have an apprehension of people who look like me. You know it. So don't you think I interact with those people every day in stores and in in hotels? Don't you think I have contact with a lot of those people? So how do you think that impacts my life? Well, you know, I, I, I think that if you can get in touch with your own pain, as that woman did in that workshop, that woman who had been sexually abused as a child, and then and then imagine now, if you wore that on your forehead, I was sexually abused as a child, and people responded to you based on what they could see, what would that feel like? See, what I was saying to that woman after the break was, and after some time, after she had sort of come back in the room and obviously was able to hear, I said, you see... You, I'm not in any way minimizing your pain. What happened to you was horrible. It should never have happened to you. And yet I wouldn't have known that had you not told me that, you see. I'm not minimizing it. I'm just trying to make a distinction. But the thing that people respond to 
the, the thing that's painful for me is something that they can see. I wear it. You see, it's like a, a person who is obese. They wear it. So people respond to them with the stares and the, and the giggles and the pointing because their emotional dysfunction, they wear it on their bodies. Same thing. You see, so um, I just asked her to, to understand and to think about that, that what's painful for me is something that people can see. And so I get their response all the time. Um, and I, she was able to, to hear that. And, and she, I talked to her afterwards because I really wanted to make sure that she understood that I was in no way minimizing and saying, well, at least you don't wear your pain like, like I do. No, I wasn't saying that. But I did want her to know that there was a distinction, and, and, she, and she did get that. Um, but, yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm sorry, Tom. Go ahead. No, it's just a phenomenal example. It's just- yeah. Yeah, yeah, it, 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 it was at the time, and it stays with me to this day because it was so powerful in the moment. Um, so I have one more question for you, Tom. I don't know if it's a fair question or not, but I'll, I'll ask you to take a stab at it. What do you think people can do to educate themselves about the reality of microaggressions and how prevalent they are, that it's, it's an everyday thing? I, I know I was doing a diversity workshop um, at a university recently, and uh, one of the European-American participants at the end of the workshop said, you know, I, I knew that things were different for me, that life was a little easier for me, but I didn't realize how prevalent it was. I mean, I didn't realize it was an everyday thing for people. I didn't realize that it was just always there. I didn't know how much it impacted your life. So let me ask you, as we have two minutes before we end the show, um, what do you think people can do? to educate themselves about microaggressions briefly? I think really just to be curious about others and, and know, know that there are differences, that people do experience things differently than I do, and to really be curious about that. And one of the ways that I suggest that in my book, Are You Clueless?, is to say we all are clueless in some way to those who are different from us, and that is okay. You know, I think uh, when we resist... Uh, others um, who may be marginalized is partly because we think, well, maybe they feel like I'm racist or I'm sexist. Mm, yeah. You know, I, I think a part of this just accepting this happens. These things this happen, yep. and, and therefore and, I can and, be more curious because I'm not exactly. personalizing it as much. Thank you, Tom. Thank you so much. You've been a wonderful guest, as I knew you would. I thank you, Tom, for sharing your insight with us, your 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 wonderful understanding of this issue. I want to thank our listeners for tuning in again to The Fate of Humanity, Crucial Conversations for Our Survival. I'm your host, Lauren Nile, and I hope that this show has given you at least something to think about. I uh, ask you to come back and join us again next week as we engage in yet another interesting conversation on The Fate of Humanity, and we'll have one of those conversations that is crucial for our survival. Have a good week, everybody. See you next week. Thank you for listening to The Fate of Humanity, Crucial Conversations for Our Survival. Please join your host, Lauren N. Dial, for another edition of our program next Wednesday morning at 6 a.m. Pacific and 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you right here next week.